So tonight I'd like to talk about happiness. And the Buddha, in his teachings, he talked about many, many kinds of happiness that we can experience in this human life. He talked about the happiness of generosity or sharing. He talked about the happiness of renunciation or letting go. He talked about the happiness of living a life of moral integrity. He talked about the happiness of concentration. And tonight I want to talk about four other kinds of happiness he talked about. These four are known as the Brahma Viharas, which translated into English means the heavenly homes or divine homes or dwelling places. And these four kinds of happiness are called that because they are like living in heaven. And these are metta or loving kindness, compassion or karuna in the Pali word, sympathetic joy or appreciative joy, mudita in Pali, and equanimity or upeka in Pali. Before I talk about these four kinds of happiness, I just want to back up a little bit and go back to my early teens or when I was about 11 or 12 years old. And during my first long retreat I did here at IMS, I had this memory come up, which some of you know happens. I had this memory come up of the moment that I gave up on life. I grew up in... um, a situation, a family that was, we'll just say dysfunctional, was difficult. And I had a childhood that was um, quite painful. And when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I decided that the house, the area needed a little cheering up. And we had these garden beds around our house, but they didn't have any gardens in them. So I decided I was going to plant some flowers and see if I can make things a little more cheerful. So I planted all these seeds, and not a single one sprouted. And I had forgotten this moment, but I remembered it when I meditated. I remember looking at all the garden beds and seeing that nothing was going to grow. And there was a part of me that at that point said, you know, life is too hard. And it was like I kind of went in somewhere inside of me that vital spark of life, and I thought, I'm going to hide this really far where it can't be seen or hurt or touched, and um, develop this, a lot of protection for myself. I think it was a good decision. And yet, as I grew, and, and I was a pretty capable person, so I was fine on the outside. I went to school. I got good grades. I went to college. I got good grades. I... I was fine, you know. But as I went into my early 20s, I realized that I was anxious a lot of the time. And I didn't really understand it, but I knew that I didn't know peace, that I wasn't really a peaceful person. And so then, um, by weird circumstances, I was actually teaching in Nicaragua after I graduated from college. And I met this guy there, and he started talking about this place where you could do, like, silent three-month retreats. 
And so like five minutes after I talked to him, I'm like, I'm going to do that. And I was like, you know, I was young, and like many of you, I was kind of mobile. And I was like, that's the next thing I'm going to do. It sounded really great. And so then he gave me this book on meditation, um, A Gradual Awakening by Stephen Levine. And I read it, and it was just like, oh, this makes so much sense. Somebody, you know, he talked about suffering and the cause of suffering, Four Noble Truths and stuff. And I read it, I was just like, wow, somebody's finally talking about life as in a way that makes sense. You know, nobody had, like, talked about suffering so directly, I felt like, before. So I signed up for the three-month retreat. And... Um, <laughs> Then I tried to meditate for five minutes and decided it was impossible. <laughs> and, um, and then I came to the three-month retreat. And um, obviously it was the best thing that ever happened to me, but it was, it was I, I, you know, I think I was lucky I didn't know what I was getting into. It was probably like a lot of you think around here, it's like, wow, I didn't know what I was getting into, right? But what I started to, um, what started to happen to me when I started to meditate is, I started to peel back those layers of protection. And I started um, opening to my pain, the pain that I was carrying. But what I found was that as I opened to the pain, I also opened to happiness. And discovered, you know, if you, what I discovered is, is that if we are not able to accept life as it is, if we're not able to accept our pain, we're not going to be able to really feel happy. That It's a package deal. And that's why we do this. I mean, that's why we bother to sit through our difficulties and our pain. It's like if we can learn to embrace that and hold it with some sense of balance, then we find that we also have available to us so much happiness that there is in this world. So, just uh, I'd like to move in then to talking about these four kinds of happiness that we can consciously develop, as you have been doing in the metta meditation, and also that we naturally develop in our vipassana practice. So, the first kind of happiness is metta, or usually translated as loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated as loving friendliness unconditional love, goodwill. The Dalai Lama said, This is my simple religion. There is no need for temples, no need for complicated philosophy. Our own brain, our own heart is our temple. The philosophy is kindness. So metta is really about learning kindness. Learning kindness towards ourselves, kindness towards others. If we just focus on the wisdom practice, understanding dukkha and life, sometimes our practice can get a little dry. And the metta practice is a way to moisten our hearts, to soften our hearts, to help sustain us in our search, and to celebrate our place in this world.
So when we do the meditation, the metta meditation, we're dedicating ourselves to developing this kind of expansive love or spiritual love, cultivating our ability to offer friendliness to ourselves, then to our loved ones, then to those that we don't know well, those who are difficult, and eventually to all beings everywhere without discrimination. In Vipassana practice, we also develop metta, and we do it by being with our experience, whatever it is, accepting it, connecting with it, accepting it. And that very accepting and holding of our experience is metta, it's love. Love is such a a hard thing to understand. You know, metta, metta, love. It's um, not so simple. You know, we have a lot of messages put out to us in this world about what love is, and a lot of them aren't love. For me, this is like a lifelong cone. I'm really interested in this question. What is love? What's unconditional love or metta? I'm so intrigued by this question that um, the first time my partner told me that he loved me, I asked him what he meant by that. (laughs) I wanted to know. (laughs) We had a good talk, and it was a while before he said it again. So um, when we do the metta practice, we start out with the benefactor first. Um, And really what we're trying to do, ourselves are the benefactor, actually ourselves. Traditionally, we start with ourselves because we're the easiest, but that's not always true here. Um, So we start out with ourselves or the benefactor um, to to remind ourselves of what we know because we all know metta. It's it's innate within us, right? So... um, We start out with the easy person, sometimes called the benefactor, um, the easiest person we can think of to remind ourselves of that quality of open-hearted, open-heartedness, really, which is metta. We, um, my partner and I recently adopted two little kittens from uh, IMS here. There was a feral cat, a mother, and she had four kittens. And we adopted two of them about um, a month or two ago. So they're still pretty little. They're like three months old or so. And when I come down in the morning and I see them, I just like, I have to, I just, a big smile comes over my face. They're so cute, you know? (laughs) That's like, that's like metta. It's just like unreserved love, right? Because they're so adorable. (laughs) They're tearing up the house at the moment, I heard, but... (laughs) Um, you know, so the, the, this kind of love can be triggered by, you know, babies or flowers, special people in our lives. It's like our hearts are really open and we feel connected and we wish the other one well, without reservation. Just want them to be happy. That's metta or, um, I would say, love, unconditional love. So we start with these easy people and then we stretch I mean, sometimes the easiest person aren't, isn't actually the person closest to us because that gets kind of complicated at times. But we start, then then we move into family and friends, which might be more complicated because we can find that attachment really comes in easy, like expectation, what we want from them, what we expect from them. And that's all like 
the, the obstacles to actually feeling love. And then we go to neutral people and difficult people. It's really powerful medicine. If, if you connect with it, I encourage you to explore it more in your life. When I did the neutral person, um, I wound up doing a long retreat here, actually, a metta retreat at one point. Or actually, to back up, I hated metta when I first came to um, <laughs> here. <laughs> that first long retreat, when they did the metta sittings, I wouldn't come to the hall <laughs> because it was just like, oh, oh. <laughs> I really had this dislike of it. And um, so I didn't do it the first eight years of my practice. And then, um, <laughs> so then at some point, like after about eight years of my practice, I was, I was feeling like um, the practice had really made it very clear to me how I suffered. And that was like really forefront and really, I noticed it a lot. And yet I felt like I was stuck. I wasn't moving through it at all. I just kept seeing how much I was suffering. And so I went to my teacher at the time, and I was like, you know, this is driving me crazy. And he said, you know, you should do a metta retreat. And I was like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, I really trusted him. So I signed up to do a metta retreat for two months. And um, it was great. I mean, it really transformed my relationship to myself and my experience and my suffering. And the wonderful thing about metta is it not only softens our hearts, but it strengthens our hearts because it's a concentration practice. Metta is a concentration practice. You just keep coming back to metta as your object. It really strengthens the mind, and yet at the same time it gives it softness and flexibility because you're cultivating this love, right, this friendliness. And so I found that it really um, it transformed my practice because it, it brought both that strength, which I needed, because I actually had more suffering I needed to look at. <laughs> it, it, um, it, so, it strength gave me the strength to do that, and it gave me softness. So it's great for, for both of those. And so I did this two-month retreat here, and I chose as my neutral person somebody um, on staff, I chose, you know, somebody I didn't know who worked here. And I did a lot of metta for her, you know, hours and hours of metta for her. And so then afterwards, I'd see her on staff sometimes. She was on staff actually until recently quite a bit. And so I'd see her, and I felt like she was my best friend or something, you know. <laughs> and it's like I had to, like, kind of hold back myself to act appropriate with her because she didn't know that, <laughs> that she was my neutral person, you know, my metta person. And, you know, after you do metta for a while with somebody neutral, they become your friend. And um, <laughs> so I'd see her, and I'd be like, I don't know, ah, you know, that's how I feel, like, ah. And then I was like, oh, wait a moment, if we don't know each other, really. <laughs> and then for my difficult person for this long retreat, I chose somebody I worked with. I was an, an English teacher at that time, an ESL teacher, and um, there was a teacher that I was having difficulty with. So I chose her, and I did hours and hours of metta for her, right? And so I was really curious when I went back to work how it was going to be working with her after I'd done all this metta. And um, it worked really well because what happened is I got back to work on a Monday, and I found out that she'd resigned on Friday. (laughs) 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 And I never saw her again. (laughs) 
So it's real, it's powerful. (laughs) (laughs) But loving deeply is is actually quite challenging. Um, Because to love deeply, we have to also understand equanimity. We have to understand that although we may wish others well and be really connected to them, things aren't always going to go well for them. You know, that there is suffering and difficulty in life and that we can't control others' destiny. So it takes time to develop this metta love because with it needs to come the understanding that life includes both joy and sorrow. There's this Korean master, um, I believe he's died now, named Sansanim, and he said, great love, great sadness. To me, true love isn't cheap. It comes with a price, and the price is being able to hold all of life, both the joy and the sorrow. So metta practice doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always feel like metta. You might have noticed that. So we're doing metta practice, and um, sometimes what comes up is the opposite of metta. So sometimes we will feel anger and judgment, um, ill will, annoyance, resentment, holding back. And that doesn't mean that you're doing the practice wrong. Actually, that's part of the practice. What happens when we do metta is we see where we hold back in love. We see where we um, contract the heart and aren't able to be open-hearted. I remember when I did this practice that first time, um, I was doing it for a friend of mine. We we start out with just ourselves and, and a benefactor for quite a while, like two weeks before you get to add anybody else in. And, um, and, I, and I remember going into my teacher at one point and saying, you know, I don't think in my life I've ever wholeheartedly wished anybody well. You know, it's like that's what you, you see that. You know, but the seeing it is what transforms it. So don't feel um, bad if you find in your practice that you come up with um, difficulties. So a part of metta is learning how to turn metta towards um, ourselves and towards the difficult sides of ourselves, towards our own um, unskillful tendencies, our own um, uh, difficult parts of our personalities, which we all have. It's like we can learn this friendliness towards ourselves through the metta practice and through the vipassana practice. And what we start to understand is that... um, this love towards ourself doesn't mean getting rid of any part of ourselves, but actually learning to um, hold ourselves with care. As Pema Chodron says, meditation practice isn't about trying to throw ourselves away and become something better. It's about befriending who we already are. So there will be ups and downs in our metta practice. I came across um, a writing by Annie Lamott recently that I really, um, she's very funny. She's great if you've never read her. She just, um, she tells it like it is, which is what's so funny about her. 
and she was talking about the um, church of 80% sincerity. And um, she was talking about this person who, who actually has a church of 80% sincerity. And she says, when David insists that you are fine exactly as you are, you find himself almost believing, you find yourself almost believing him. When he talks about unconditional love, he gives a new lease on life. Because the way he explains it, you may for the first time believe that even you could taste this. As he explains it, in the church of 80% sincerity, everyone has come to understand that unconditional love is a reality, but with a shelf life of about 8 to 10 seconds. <laughs> Instead of beating yourself up when you feel it only fleetingly, you should savor those moments when it appears. As David puts it, we might say to our beloved, Honey, I've been having these feelings of unconditional love for you for the last 8 to 10 seconds. <laughs> Or, darling, I'll love you until the very end of dinner. (laughs) What I appreciate about that is the honesty (laughs) and the lightness of it, you know? We can be easy with ourselves as we're trying to learn what love is. Oh, I can already tell I have so much I want to say, and I'm not going to have time. The, the last teaching of metta, I think, um, is, is it teaches us um, interconnectedness. It teaches us how we belong in this web of life. Sri Nisargadatta, a very well-known Hindu saint, said, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between these two, my life flows. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. When we learn to connect with others through metta, we learn not to feel separate. We learn um, how we are part of this great web of humanity and that we belong here. We're part of life. And this is a very happy feeling. So that's the happiness of metta. The second uh, divine home is compassion or karuna. So when we can feel this basic friendliness towards life, then what we do is we practice turning this friendliness towards suffering. To develop compassion, we allow ourselves to acknowledge and feel the suffering that exists in our own hearts and the world. Sometimes compassion is called the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. And it is a kind of beautiful feeling. It's, not, it's, it's a kind of happiness. It's obviously not a hip, hip, hooray happiness because it's, you know, we are connecting with suffering when we feel connect, compassion. But it's, it's really beautiful and subtle, again, in that sense of connection that we feel when we can care about pain. So it's kind of bittersweet. It's a bittersweet um, feeling. You know, the bitterness is the fact that there is the suffering, and the sweetness is the fact that we can care about it and connect. John Wellwood says, 
Feeling our broken, open heart has a bittersweet quality. Reality never quite fits our fond hopes. That is a bitter taste. The sweetness is that when reality breaks our heart, it is calling on us to soften and open. As we soften and expand, we discover a sweet, raw tenderness towards ourselves and the fragile beauty of life as a whole. To me, that's that feeling of compassion. And compassion, um, is, again, is a, is a kind of um, beautiful feeling that we learn to develop. We have to learn what it is. It's not so easy. Again, we have funny ideas sometimes what compassion means. Sometimes we, we think it means like we pity somebody. And that's not compassion. Because compassion is actually a relationship of equals. It's a relationship of I understand your suffering because I understand my own suffering. Or sometimes we think of compassion as kind of a grief and despair, and that's not quite it either. You know, sometimes we discover what compassion is again by discovering what it is not. It's like the metta. You know, we have to work our way through it. Because compassion also takes that equanimity of understanding how life is and being able to hold that. One of my favorite quotes that I think describes compassion is Ryokan, the um, Japanese hermit poet. He said, Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Just that deep sense of care, right? And yet there's a little lightness, this floating world, he says. It's like understanding life and, and caring about it. And we really develop our, our ability to feel compassion by working with our own pain. You know, when we know how to work with our own fear and our own anger, our own sadness, then when we see that in the other, outer world, we don't have to react to it. We know how to relate to it. We know how to hold it with care. So we really are practicing here. When we practice relating to our own suffering, we're practicing developing compassion. So our own suffering teaches us how to open to this world with compassion. The famous uh, Sufi mystic Rumi says, everyone chooses a suffering that will change him or her to a well-baked loaf. So you're all here cooking. (laughs) I like that. Everyone chooses a suffering that will change him or her to a well-baked loaf. And again, um, again, developing compassion really um, develops that sense of being part of the web of life, of being connected, of belonging, of oneness. But life isn't only about suffering, right? The next uh, Brahma Vihara, our divine home, is appreciative joy. And with compassion, we turn our friendliness and our attention towards suffering and how we can care about it. With appreciative joy, we turn our attention and um, uh, our focus towards the happiness and the joy that exists in life. You can see how they balance each other, right? It's the full spectrum. So 
This word mudita, appreciative joy, mudita is um, translated as rejoicing or gladness. Sometimes it's called sympathetic joy, taking delight in other people's happiness. And this too frees our hearts, makes us feel connected, and makes us happy. The Dalai Lama says that if we're really strong in mudita, we increase our chances of happiness six billion to one. (laughs) Because if we can appreciate others' happiness, right? Wow, there's a lot of it out there. With this, with developing this Brahma Vihara of mudita, we begin to understand that happiness is limitless. And that having others having more of happiness doesn't mean that we're going to have less. Thich Nhat Hanh is known to say, happiness is available, please help yourself to it. And I remember this a lot. I think it's about connecting to the beauty and appreciating the beauty that's always here in life. Meditation really helps us develop this appreciation of beauty and happiness by really training us to be present and opening our senses, teaching us to connect more fully to our senses. As we learn to bring ourselves back over and over again to our sense experience, um, we learn to appreciate subtlety and beauty, or just learn to connect to it, you know? When we're busy and disconnected, we miss so many little things, so many little um, types of beauty. Kind of the beauty that's more like about contentment. You know, the sky turning its different colors of pink and purple as the sun sets and the sound of the crickets out the window. we really begin to notice more all the amazing, beautiful things that there are in this world. And if we can stop and be still, we can do that so much more easily. And it's just, you know, ordinary life. Ordinary life is such a beautiful mystery. I'm sure some of you have noticed that, like on retreat, you notice how the colors perhaps become brighter or sounds become more rich and developed. Now, we think of the sound of the bell, and that's one thing, but when we really listen to it, there's a lot going on. It's beautiful, all the different tones and how they weave. So compassion and appreciative joy, they balance each other. You know, compassion keeps us from getting, um, you know, from getting a little bit um, uh, over-sentimental about life or kind of an ignorant optimism. And mudita gives us the, the, um, it keeps us from sinking in despair about the suffering, right? We need both of these. They balance each other very beautifully. And they both require, again, that equanimity, that ability to accept life as it is, and understanding that joy and sorrow um, weave through the web of life, that the web of life has many different strands. It's an always-changing web. 
And this leads into the last kind of happiness that I want to talk about tonight, and that's the happiness of equanimity, or upeka. The Buddha taught that this is the best kind of happiness, the highest kind of happiness that we can experience as humans, the happiness of equanimity, or a mind that is at peace with life as it is. So equanimity is this mind that can accept the flow, the river of life, the, the joys and the sorrows, the pleasure and the pain, and um, accept it without reacting, without reactivity, with peace. So it's a mind that's free of the craving that Chaz mentioned last night as a cause of our suffering. It's the mind that's free of craving and aversion. We're doomed to restlessness if we think of happiness as um, pleasant experience only. You know, we're always going to be searching, and we can't control. You know, yesterday it was sunny, and then we woke up this morning, and it was rainy, right? We couldn't control that. If we are looking for happiness in pleasant things, we're always going to be searching, and we're going to be restless. We want no peace. Recently, I went on a, um, I did a self-retreat in June in um, the Adirondacks. I went on a wilderness retreat by myself, camping on a lake in the wilderness. And um, the day I was going to leave for this retreat, the weather report said it was going to rain for the next five days. And, um, you know, it's a little part of me is like, oh, should I go, you know? And then um, I was just like, yes, I'm going to go. Because meditation isn't about being comfortable, it's about learning how to deal with life as it is. And sometimes it rains, you know. And so it was just like, this is, this is my retreat, and this is okay. This is good, you know. Um, it's good to see if I can be happy even though it's cold and raining. And it was cold and raining. Um, it rained the first few days and wasn't too cold, and then the next two days it was like, it didn't get out of the 40s, and it was raining. So it was like all day raining and cold. It was an amazing retreat. It was wonderful. But you can't always control that, right? I can't control what's going to happen. Another thing that happened on that retreat is um, I had brought this treat with me. I would brought chocolate-covered almonds. This was going to be my little treat after my, you know, my lunch or whatever. It's going to be to have some chocolate-covered almonds. And so the first couple of days, my partner came, and he helped me set up, which was very nice of him. And then um, I kicked him out sent him home. And um, after he left, I couldn't find my chocolate-covered almonds. <laughs> so I was like, he wouldn't take them, would he? <laughs> you know, so there was no chocolate-covered almonds. So I had to deal with a retreat with no chocolate-covered almonds. And it's kind of like here, you know, they were a big deal. <laughs> But, you know, it was like, okay, that's all right. Um, and then, like a day later, I found this empty bag in the food bag. I found this little empty plastic bag, and it had this little hole chewed in it. Every chocolate-covered almond was gone. That was it. It was like the perfect hoist. <laughs> I think it must have been some, like, red squirrels just, like, just went right for my chocolate-covered almonds, <laughs> took every single one, and covered up all the evidence, except a day later I find this empty bag, right? 
you can't always get what you want. That's what equanimity is about. You can't always control life. Then the last day, um, the weather report, I did have a radio. I checked the weather every once in a while. So the weather report for the last morning was that it was going to be fine. So I woke up the last morning. It's pouring. So if any of you like go camping, breaking down camp and pouring rain isn't much fun, right? So, I, But I had to do it, so I broke it all down, got in my, my canoe, and, and it was pretty windy, but I know how to canoe, so I started. I, I left, and I got in the middle of the lake, and a thunderstorm started. And it was too windy to go to the shore because it was rocky, and um, it was really was windy. I, I didn't want to crash into the rocks. And so I'm just paddling out, right? It's pouring rain. It's thundering. It's lightning, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> it's like this is life sometimes it pours on you is this okay you know so equanimity is developing the ability to be okay it's pouring alright that's okay <laughs> I tell you when I started meditating I certainly wouldn't have had that attitude here's somebody who, who took it even a little further than I did one of my teachers at Tashi Jong was Amtrin Togden, so this would be a Tibetan teacher. He was a great yogin who lived previously at some place in eastern Tibet. This place is very steep in between cliffs. His guru put him in a high mountainous place for nine years. His practice developed well and everything was quite easy. The place had beautiful views and a lot of space and nothing changed much. But he went to see his teacher and he said that now he needed a horrible place to meditate because everything in his previous place had been too good. So his guru sent him to a small cave in a cleft between the mountains. The sun never came into the cave and it was very cold and damp. It was near a big waterfall and about 14,000 feet up, a place with a lot of bad smells and very damp. The wind roared down the cleft and made it impossible to light a fire. His cave was full of birds yet. Excuse my French, but that's what it says. <laughs> he stayed there for five years, and his practice really improved. <laughs> now any difficulty doesn't worry him. Whatever occurs is nothing to him. This is an excellent example for us to follow. We should keep this in mind. So if you're suffering on retreat, that's okay. This is how we learn, right? The Tibetans even say, you know, it's good to have some problems on retreat, like this teacher here. He went out looking for him. He thought it was too easy. Um, Because this is how we learn. This is how we learn to be with life. And this is how we develop a mind of equanimity, of peace, with things as they are. So this mind of equanimity is a very free mind. It's it's not bound. It's not um, addicted to pleasure. It's not bound to circumstances, but it's free. It can be happy with whatever conditions there are. So the way we develop this kind of mind is by looking at um, how we make a problem out of life. Sansanim again said, you make problem, you have problem. <laughs> He had this kind of uh, English. He'd come from Korea when he was older. You make problem, you have problem. Um, So we investigate how we make a problem out of life. 
basically. We get curious about how we're relating to our life. And in our practice, we just do that every moment, you know, moment to moment on the cushion. So this is a real goal of meditation is to understand how we're relating to our life. We get curious about that. And we, and we learn to be more playful and flexible with our, with our minds. And this retreat that I did in the um, Adirondacks, I would wake up every morning, I'd look out the tent, and it would be raining and cold. And so I, I, I practiced having like a, um, a five or ten minute bitch session. So I'm just like, <laughs> I would just let my mind like kind of feel sorry for myself and everything, which is like, oh, it's raining, this is my retreat, it's cold, oh, I'm exposed to the elements, going to be outside alone. And um, I would just let my mind do that for a while. It kind of needed to do it, you know? And then it would be, okay, well, that was done. Um, so now how am I going to be happy today? You know, given that this is life, this is what I have. And what was fun was that each day the bitch session just got a little shorter on its own. I didn't even have to shorten it. You know, I got kind of bored with that. <laughs> it's like, how can I be happy today? That's the question. How can I be happy in this moment? That's what we're doing here. We're investigating that. So explore the reactivity of our minds, and that's how we learn equanimity. So that we develop a mind of um, no preferences. Last year I was um, practicing, no, a year and a half ago I was practicing in Burma. I went to this um, monastery in Burma called Chaswa that some of us have been to. Chaz has been there. Um, meditating in Asia is really good for learning how to be happy under any circumstances because generally it's more trying than here and in this country. It's more difficult. And I had this uh, little kuti, this little hut, overlooking the Irrawaddy River. It was very beautiful, very lovely. And yet there was a lot of um, carpentry going on <laughs> First, when I first went there, there was one project, and then there was another one. And so I, I had this little hut, and on one side there was all this carpentry that would go on, saws and this and that. And then on the other side there was um, this little waterfall where, the, like, the cistern was, and the water would come into it. And I would sit sometimes and meditate and see if the carpentry sounds could be the same in my mind as the waterfall sounds. And it was really fun to kind of play with that, you know, okay, because... My natural tendency, obviously, would be not to like the carpentry and to like the, the, the waterfall. So I would just play, like, ah, oh, can, can they be equal? And sometimes they were. It was an amazing experience. Sometimes they weren't, <laughs> so, you know. But just ex- we explore that. We explore how we relate to things. So, so while we're here looking at our pain and, um, you know, looking at how we relate to unpleasantness, looking at how we relate to pleasantness, um, we're really exploring happiness. We're exploring this happiness of equanimity. So this is, this is like a happiness lab. Sometimes I wonder why they don't, like, teach happiness in schools. You know, I think this is much more useful lab than, like, a biology lab where you dissect a frog or something. It seems more important to have happiness labs like we're having here. 
ultimately we develop equanimity by understanding impermanence change. Understanding that life is this river of change and it flows and we learn to flow with it. There's um, a well-known Buddhist chant, which actually you guys have in front of you, and we, we will chant it in a few minutes. It says, it's translated, it says, don't look at it now. <laughs> All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. And I, I just really love this um, this chant, it, it basically sums up the Buddha's teachings. So before we chant this, so I want to talk a bit, minute about what happened to my gardening career. So I came here and I did this, um, this long retreat. I did a five-month, I actually stayed after the three months for a couple months. So I did five months of retreat. And then um, I was a little blown away and um, decided to come on staff here on a work retreat as a way to kind of settle down a little bit. And um, I chose to do a work retreat in the garden. At that time, they had a garden back here, a big vegetable garden that fed um, the retreat center. Well, sometimes, not totally, but fed it some in the summer. And so I did a retreat, uh, a gardening retreat, with the, and learned how to garden, learned what you needed to do to make things grow. And um, a couple years later, when I finally settled down, uh, in my in you know a place instead of being nomadic in my twenties, um, I had my own garden, and so the first time that I planted this garden, I was actually quite trepidatious. I was like worried, what if it doesn't grow again? <laughs> you know, it was like that'll be a bad sign. <laughs> and so I planted all these vegetable seeds, and I had this absolutely beautiful garden that grew wonderfully. And since then, uh, every year for almost twenty years now, I've had a vegetable garden and. Um, a couple of years, I grew my own vegetables that I ate for the whole year. Just grew my own, enough to make it through the whole year. And um, I love to garden. And sometimes, you know, the bugs get some of the plants. Sometimes the moles eat the potatoes. And that's okay. I, I grow enough for all of us. I love... um the poet Pablo Neruda. And on this retreat that I did in the Adirondacks, I read some of the poems from the last year of his life. Just this incredibly deep and um, wise person. And there's a poem that he has that describes life's journey, and there's one line that I really loved. He says, describing life's journey, he says, to search for the light that sings inside of me, the unwavering light. To search for the light that sings inside of me, the unwavering light. So that's what we're doing here. We're, we're, we're searching for the light that sings inside of us, the unwavering light. I'd love to teach you this little chant um, to end tonight.
All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. So we'll do a call and response, okay? Anicca Vata Sankara Anicca Vata Sankara Upadaya Damino Upadaya Damino Upakitua Nirujanto Upakitua Nirujanto Te sang upasama, te sang upasama, suko. Do it again. Call and response. Anicca vata sankara. Anicca vata sankara. Upadaya damino. Upakitua niruchanto. Upakitua niruchanto. Te sang upasama. Te sang upasama. Suko. Suko. Should we do it one time together? Anicca vata sankara upadaya damino upakitua niruchanto te sang upasama sukho. All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. Understanding this brings the greatest kind of happiness, which is peace. Let's sit for a moment. <laughs> 